my message this morning is, uh, hopefully it'll be encouraging. I believe it's going to be encouraging. I believe it's a word from God it's to help us and stir us up. Have you ever had those times where you've thought to yourself, if Jesus was here right now, I would have a few questions for him? Have you ever thought, if Jesus were here, I would like to get his advice on something? I would like to get his opinion about this. Maybe you'd want to hear from Jesus' words about your future. Maybe you want to hear from Jesus' words about your plans for your life and, and what, what he wants you to do. Maybe a, a mother here might want to have uh, words of advice about how to be a better mother, how to, to bring up their kids rightly. Maybe a father wants to be a better role model. On and on, there's other questions that might come to our minds whenever we think about the opportunity to speak to Jesus and ask him for advice. The, the sickening thing sometimes, if that's the right word, uh, is that often whenever people approach Jesus in the Gospels, in the eyewitness testimonies, often when they approached him and asked him questions, he would ask them, well, what does the scripture say? Because God has revealed himself and his will and his mind through the scriptures. So we've got an insight into what, what God would say to any given situation that we might find ourselves in. There was a number of cases where this happened in the New Testament, and I want to just look at one of them today. Um, it's in the book of Mark chapter 12, if you have your Bible with you. Mark chapter 12. Jesus was in the temple, as he often was, and he was walking through the temple and he was teaching. You probably find that as he walked through it, that he was looking at things and he was, people were looking at the altar. Maybe he went up beside them and he would start to say, share with them. You know, the altar signifies you know the significance of that there? Maybe they'd be talking over about some sort of uh, discussion about the scriptures, about God, and he would come alongside and he would interject. And as time has gone by through his life and through his ministry, the eyewitness testimony tells us that people would then come to him with questions. They recognized him. They recognized the way that he spoke. They recognized the clarity with which he spoke and the authority with which he spoke. So he was walking through the temple one day in, in the book of Mark, and a bunch of scribes had came to him and they had challenged him, challenged him on what he believed and what he, he, he taught. Um, what they were doing is the scribes were looking for him to side with them against the Pharisees. They were looking to create a bit of division there and, and identify Jesus as a closet scribe, uh, or closet Sadducee, I should say. But Jesus was having none of it. He put them firmly in their place. He answered their question um, and he, he pushed them away and he said, you don't know what you're talking about. It's powerful actually whenever you read it and in, in, like I said, Mark chapter 12. But then a scribe approaches him. The scribes and the Pharisees often had a, a, an animosity towards the Sadducees because the Sadducees was very much a secular institution. Even though it governed the country, it still had uh, a lot of secular influences and it controlled people in that way. Whereas the scribes leaned more towards the law and the Pharisees obviously was a movement for holiness. So the scribes and the Pharisees had, didn't like the Sadducees an awful lot. So this young scribe comes up to Jesus and asks him a question. The scribes were, we would say in this day and age, like lawyers. They understood the law. They understood all of the commands of God in the Old Testament. And they would draw up contracts if you were getting married, if you were taking out a loan, if you were getting a divorce, if you were selling property, things like that there, they understood what the Old Testament laws stated on these subjects. And they would be able to interpret it and put it down on paper in such a way that people would then be able to bank on it, so to speak. 
So they understood the, the law. They were very much a, a men of letters and of understanding in that respect. So we come to uh, Mark chapter 12, and we'll start at verse number 28. It says, Then one of the scribes came, and having heard them reasoning together, that's Jesus and the Sadducees, he perceived that he had answered them well, and he asked him, Which is the first commandment of all? Jesus answered him and said, The first commandment, of, uh, the commandment is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God uh, with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. This is the first commandment. And the second, like it, is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. In those days, the, the Pharisees and maybe the scribes as well, they had this discussion going on. Which commandments are more important? What is it more important for me to follow and obey? And which is, can I get away with not being as strict on? They classified it in terms of light and weighty. They looked at things and they went, this is a, a light matter. This is not as important, but this is vitally important. And they had their debate back and forth and it raged on and on. And they would, they would probably sit down together with a list of the, of the laws and they would debate it back and forth and they would go, uh, uh, go back and forth in a debate setting. Now the Pharisees, they, there's 613 laws in the Old Testament and the Pharisees taught that this was a law for every letter, every letter used in the Ten Commandments. So 613 letters in the Ten Commandments was their, uh, their thinking. Now, out of, those six, uh, out of those laws, there was 248 positive commands. Thou shalt, thou shalt love the Lord thy God. Thou shalt honor thy father and mother. Thou shalt, and that type of thing. But they also said that there was 365 negative commands, things that you shouldn't do, that you shall not kill, you shall not commit adultery, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not cut, you know, things like that there. And on and on and on this list went. And they debated back and forward which ones are more important than others. Because they're almost impossible to follow all of these laws. There's so many of them that by following one, I'm bound to trip up on another. Now, the Pharisees was a movement in those days that desired to get back to holiness. They desired to get back to a place where God would bless them, a place where God would use them, a place where God's Messiah, the Mashiach, would come and deliver them. They desired to purify the nation in thought and word and deed and be in harmony with God and therefore God will bless us. And that was their desire. And it, the, the truth of that is it was, it was an admirable notion. It was admirable. However, how they implemented that was often uh, mistaken. They became obsessed with the laws, with, obsessed with the observance and ritual to the point where they left out any relationship with God. They had no relationship with God. They had no grace about them and no mercy with them. They were harsh on the people. Jesus actually frequently got argued with them and, and really annoyed him, not necessarily by the way they treated the law, but by the way they treated the people and how they interacted with the people. Actually, at one point, Jesus, uh, he confronted them in Matthew 23. I'll not turn to it, but it's a fascinating chapter to read. Matthew 23, where Jesus declares his woes unto the Pharisees and hypocrites. In 23, verse 23, he says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you pay tithe of mint, ants, and cumin, and have neglected the weightier matters of the law. Remember, they're valuating everything, the weightier, the weightier laws and the lighter laws. 
He's, he's condemning them for it. He says, you have uh, neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faith. These you ought to have done without leaving the others undone. Blind guides, you strain at a gnat and you swallow a camel. He's not very flattering of them. As a holiness movement, they had missed the mark. They had missed what was important. Methodism arguably was a, a holiness movement who really turned the nation back to God through method. And look at the revival that came through the Wesleys. But Jesus here, confronted by this young scribe, I think in a genuine way, he's genuinely asking Jesus, what is the most important laws? What is the weightier ones? Jesus gets past the theological and legal question and gets to the heart of the person. How many times did he do that, Jesus, when he was talking to people? Get past all the fluff and stuff, get past all the legal mumbo jumbo and get to the heart of what a person was like and what a person was going through. Get to where they really were. And Jesus does this in this, this passage. He just started off there in verse 29 and he answered, uh, and he answered him, the first of all the commandments is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Uh, and that was his first opening salvo. That's not a command as such. That's the Shema. That's the prayer that all Jews would have recited. The religious Jews would recite this in the morning and in the evening. I was telling someone for earlier on there, just after the morning service, the first service, that the, the Jews actually to this day, it would be in their menorah beside their doorposts. They print out these scriptures and they have them there and they would touch them as they walk by the Shema. It's such an important prayer to them. They would recite it in the morning and in the evening. Hear, O Israel, uh, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. It is vital. Shema Yisrael Adonai Eloheinu Adonai Achad. Shema, it means hear. Hear, O Israel. He's changing the, the tone of the conversation. He's lifting the perspective. He's lifting the perspective from what he was getting caught up with laws and with observances, and he wants to give him a bigger point of view. So he steps back. This is a direct quote from Deuteronomy chapter six. Both this, uh, this whole verse is a direct quote from Deuteronomy chapter six, and he's getting him to step back. Before I tell you the law, let me tell you, Shema Yisrael, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Achad, the Lord our God. Let's look at the big picture here. Let's get out of the teeth of this, this, this bind that you're in. You're thinking about these laws. You're thinking about these things, words and, and rituals and what you have to do and what you not have to do. Let's remember the God who gave you these laws. Let's remember the start of everything, where it all came from. We didn't make this up. It came from God. Let's think about God first. There's something important in that. Before we start getting caught up in, in the minutiae and in the details, let's remember we're talking about God. Let's remember we're talking about God Almighty. Here in this, the, this prayer, uh, he says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord there is Yahweh. He is the one who is the covenant keeper, who has revealed himself in great deliverance. He has just demonstrated his care and love, and he deserves the believer's love. You're worried about that? Let's start with looking at who gave you that law. Let's, let's start with the bigger picture. This is the covenant-keeping God we're talking about. This is the God who's in covenant with you to look after you and to bless you and to lead you. Let's, let's look at that there. He has come down and he's in relationship with you through his promises and through his, his covenant with you. 
You want to get caught up in those things? That's okay. But let's talk about God first. And he goes on then, he says, this is, uh, Hero Israel, the Lord our God. God there is Elohim, which indicated majesty and power. He is all powerful and his fo- uh, followers can afford to trust themselves in him, to him in faith and in love. This is the God who is worthy of it. This is a God who is holy, God who is mighty. We're talking about laws now. Let's remember, he's a God who's in covenant, but he's a mighty God. He's a powerful God. We're not just bandering words around and just following something for academic reasons. This relationship with God cannot be an academic exercise. It has to be something that that strikes us to our very core. It has to mean something. It has the significance. Jesus elevated the answer from something that was to be debated and argued over and sat around over cups of tea and just, oh, what do you think? What do you think? No, no, no. We're talking about God Almighty. The God who has delivered us. I think whenever you're looking at these, whenever you're looking at God and our relationship with God and the things we can do and the things that we can't do, I think the first thing we should do is we look at God and remember that he is our God. He is, we say the word, our Lord. Do we treat him as Lord or do we treat him just as a friend? Yes, he's a friend who sticks closer as a bro- uh, than a brother, but he is still Lord. He's done a mighty work. We ask, what am I obliged to do? What is, what is the legal requirement here? What is the, 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 the least I can get away with? What can I do and not get arrested? That's what we ask. What is the least I can do to be a follower of Christ? What is the least I can do? That's the wrong question. What ought I to do? What is the right thing to do? How do I live? What should I do? You elevate that answer from something that's self-centered and you elevate it into the kingdom of God. And what does God say? What should I do as a child of God? How should I live? There's a powerful responsibility in that, isn't there? So by starting here with this prayer, with the Shema, with his emphasis on the Lord and the Lordship of God, he elevates the discussion. He automatically puts it into a whole nother realm He wanted to just sit and talk. Let's just see, oh, what about this law? What about that law? What about this law? No, he's lifted the conversation from something that's merely just a a discussion to a real learning moment, to a moment where he was going to be instructed and taught and enlightened. So you can have a lot of head knowledge and it makes no difference at all to your life. You can have a lot of knowledge up here. You've met those people who are PhD geniuses who have got no common sense. See, what he's starting to do is he's teaching a lesson here to this young man. He's teaching him that this is the God who has delivered Israel. This is the God who is in covenant with you. This is the God who has done so much for you. Now, as a result, you should live like it. You should live like he is a God who has made a change in your life. You should live like he's a God who has changed your life. Actually, when you look into the Old Testament and you look at the laws in Exodus chapter 20, God starts off in Exodus chapter 20, verse 2. He says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. Now, 
They shall have no other gods before me. You shall, he goes into the laws. See, there's a connection between what he has done for us and now how we live as his people. There's a responsibility, actually, about how we live as followers of God. So the children of Israel, this was going to be revolutionary. God has delivered you. He has freed you from the bondage of Egypt. He has crowned you with loving kindness. He's brought you into freedom. He's given you a land. He has placed his name upon you. He's given you his favor. Now you have been delivered from that and you've got a responsibility to walk in this. And you've got a responsibility towards God. You have to live like it's real. You can't live like it's a hobby. Like it's something that's just passing along. There should be a response. There should be a response. If there's no response, I'm afraid you've got the wrong cookie. I'm afraid if there's no response, you're, you're, you're eating the wrong cake. There should be a response from the, from the children of Israel and from us. There should be a change in us to do with an alignment of our minds and of our hearts and of our being. There should be a change. Solomon actually comes to the point whenever he's dedicating the temple later on in 2 Chronicles chapter 6, 14, he says at the dedication of the temple, he said, Lord God of Israel, there is no God in heaven or earth like you who keeps your covenant and mercy with your servants who walk before you with all their hearts. Now we know they're going to make, we know they messed up and they made mistakes, but they walked before him, them, before God with all their hearts. There was an expected response. I have delivered you from bondage and slavery and oppression and, and agony and death. I have brought you to life, to freedom, to hope, to a future, to, to God's promises. I've brought you to that. Now the expectation, natural. I have to say this is a natural expectation. is out of a heart of love and gratitude that we will now walk in a way that is pleasing to him. We're expected to. I mean, do you think that we can now get free? I'm, I'm now walking, I'm now a child of God. I can live whatever way I like. If you think that, please, please, please show me. I need to know where. It's not there. So too in the New Testament, now we have a, a wonderful experience with Christ. Look at John 3 and 16. For God so loved the world, he loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, gave him as a sacrifice for us, that whosoever believeth him should not perish but have everlasting life. Wonderful. Praise the Lord. Delivered. Set free. Redeemed. Amen. Gloriously. I tell you, it's something to celebrate. It's something to rejoice in. Amen. It's something to express. It's something that should define us. And the verse that we, do, we like, especially at the moment, we're using this verse, Romans 8, 28. It says, For we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. Is that experience of the heart, is that engagement of our beings, of, of everything that we are with God, the progression from being saved and delivered to now loving him because of that deliverance and because of what he has done? I said in the earlier 
service. There's an old song, and I am going to sing it. We used to sing it, and this song's been going over in my heart and in my mind the last few weeks. Um, and I'm sure if you know it, you'll sing along. It says, Oh, how I love Jesus. Oh, how I love Jesus. Oh, how I love Jesus, because he first loved me. Isn't that wonderful? What a truth in that. Because he first loved us, my heart's response is I got to love him. Now, we don't all come to Christ out of love. Sometimes we come to Christ out of con a conviction, out of a sense of what we were heading towards, a lost eternity. But as we get to know him, as we get to understand through the scripture who he is and what he has done, the love grows in our hearts and our expression of that then manifests itself. The abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. It is wonderful to know the saviors this morning. It's wonderful to be in a relationship with him. And amidst this time of, of stress, this mist, amidst this time of confusion, of worry, of anxiety, amidst this time, it's great to know the peace of God that passes all understanding. Amen. We have countless reasons. We're being told every day why you should be in anxiety. I don't know how many times I've been in anxiety over this pandemic. Oh, a wee bit of a sweat. Oh, oh, oh. What's that? Oh, <coughs> cough. No, it was only one cough. It wasn't persistent. Times of anxiety. I'm not, talking about, I'm not talking about being foolish. I'm just talking about you can be anxious about things to the point where it consumes you. It's great to know the God. It's great to know the Savior. So he went on from starting off with the Shema, the prayer. And he said there, and it's verse 30, and it says, And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. Some have divided this here passage, these words up, said, saying that the heart is the emotional nature, the soul is the volitional nature, the mind is the intellectual nature, and the strength is the physical nature. And I'm, it may be it has some bearing on that there. However, I think the significant, is all, significant word is all. All here speaks of total submission and dedication. It excludes any half-heartedness. The heart is the seat of emotions in general and of love in particular. The soul is the center of personality. Loving with one's soul thus implies that love must permeate to the core of an individual's being to his very will. It should be all-encompassing about who we are. All-encompassing about who we are. That love that we have for God. Because of what he's done, yes, but that love for him, when we think about what he has done, we meditate on it, what he has done for us. That love grows within us. And it now then causes us to think about these things, to evaluate these things. See, being a Christian isn't something that should be tagged on to our lives. It shouldn't be an afterthought. It shouldn't be a hashtag Christian. P.S. I'm a Christian. It shouldn't be a part-time Christian. Being a Christian should be something that is vital to us. It's important to us. It's something that defines who we are. We had a young man outfitting a, a, an alarm system at our house there after the first lockdown. 
Um, it's because there was a few burglaries in our area. And he was a nice young man and started chatting to him. And over the couple of times he visited, because he came and he did one part of it, and he'd come back and do another part. And as he came and he visited, I chatted to him. Looking back now, I can see that my conversation had one direction. At the time, I was just chatting to him, talking to him about things, dropping references to things, people and places. All of them had a significance and surrounded the church. People in this building, people in the church. Oh, you're from Warringstown? I know some people from Warringstown. They go to my church. Just said the word church. I've just opened a wee bit of a door there. I look back at it now, and I started a conversation with him the first time he visited, and we all went in the same direction. And it came to that moment on the doorstep where he had finished the work, I had paid him the money, and he's about to leave, and I had that choice. I had that choice. Will I actually say something? Will I make that definite jump in with both feet and let him know that I'm a Christian? I mean, I've said it so many times. The first time he came to speak, or he came, I was actually preparing to speak in, in church. Uh, and it was a case of I said to him, yes, yeah, so I'll just be in the study there. I'm, I'm preparing for Sunday. <laughs> but there on that doorstep, I took that opportunity, thankfully, thankfully. And I said to him, you know, um, uh, I've obviously spoke to you and told you I was speaking in church and I go to church. I said, no, I said, I don't know if you've met anyone like me. I said, but it defines who I am. I am a Christian, first and foremost. I said, I follow God. I read the Bible. I pray, listen to praise and worship. It defines me. Nothing else defines me. I'm not going to let anything else define me. I'm a child of God. And I, I started talking to him. And I said, listen, purely on a flat level, I said, you just look at the influence Jesus has had on society as a man how he has inspired people to do good things, to do kind things, to do gracious things. It's a flat way of looking at Jesus, but it's a, it's a valid way. You can look at him and say, no one else has inspired so much kindness and grace and mercy and charity. No one else has in history. You look at his influence, surely this man deserves thinking about. I says, my advice to you would be go and read the eyewitness testimonies. That's what the gospels are, eyewitness testimonies. Read them and see what it says about his life. I said, but then I'll evaluate what he says about himself and what he says about you, and what he says about me. And I had that choice of being a believer and a follower of God. I had no other choice but to talk about Jesus because it became consuming. It says in the Bible and in Corinth that Christians were first, believers were first called Christians. It's because they talked about Christ so much. Everyone was going like, what is this Christ? What is this Christ? And it's because the Christians were talking about Christ, 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 Christ. He saved us. Christ delivered us. Christ set us free. Christ adopted us into the family of God. And they started as a slur, as a, as a, a way of making fun of them. They call them, ah, they're Christians. We Christians. But what a wonderful truth to be, define ourselves by who we are in relationship with. Now, we have to be careful. We're talking here about loving the Lord your God with all your heart, your mind, and your strength. We have to be very careful here now when we use the word love because the word love has a lot of emotional baggage with it. It has a lot of connotations that we, 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 we're just, it, it's touchy. Now, Don Francisco famously sang a song. I love Don Francisco. I'm not ashamed to say it. Uh, every Easter, there's one of his, uh, me and Rosine love, love Don Francisco. There's one of his songs, uh, um, uh, He's Alive. Every Easter morning, I pop that on the, in the house uh, and then the other one is Adam. I love that one. It's another great one. But he also sang a song, and the chorus of it, 
was love is not a feeling, it's an act of your will. Love is not a feeling, it's an act of your will. If I only loved my wife when I felt like it, what sort of relationship would we have? If I only did the dishes and helped her around the house when I felt like it, what sort of relationship would I have? Without, if love was purely a feeling, would I be as attentive? Would I be as, as helpful? Would I be as, uh, as generous? And vice versa, vice versa. I'll put that in there now. <laughs> vice versa, would she as be helpful towards me if it was purely based on feelings? If that's all it was? I, mean, I looked at the wedding vows before I got married. I, I, I checked out the marriage ceremony to see where it said on there, do you feel like you love her today? Will you feel like you love her tomorrow? Do you feel like you love her next week, next month, next year? It doesn't say it. It is not there. The question that the pastor asks and, and whoever's performing the ceremony asks, the response is, I will, because it's an act of the will. If I only follow God and believe God when I feel like it, if I only gather with God's people, if I only ever read the Bible, if I only ever pray when I feel about it, what about what's my relationship with God going to be like? How's God going to feel about me? Going to feel like his, his relationship is starved? Oh, then people, they say they love me. But do they really? They never spend any time with me. They never spend any time with my people. They never spend, they never spend any time in, in reading the word. Read, listen, God wants to speak to you. This is how he speaks to you. We have to be careful when we use the word love. We've got to be careful with all of our, our words when we talk about God and the things of God. Being in a relationship with God is about devotion and discipleship. Oh, dirty words, dirty words. But there's an expectation here. Jesus goes on in this discussion with this young scribe and he, he takes him further He's only asked them for what is the greatest command? What is the most important? Which should I put the most emphasis on? And Jesus has said to him, love the Lord your God. But now he takes them one step further beyond his simple answer, beyond the one, one answer he wanted. And he said, this is the first commandment. And verse 31, it says, and the second is like it. Is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. See, for the Jews, they understood this. This is straight from the Old Testament. This is from Leviticus 19, where, he's, where they are commanded to love their neighbors. It actually talks about loving the, the uh, foreigner who is born in their country and treating them like a Jew, treating them like a Hebrew, like one of your own, loving them in that respect. And it talks about that. But they had they'd embraced this idea of loving your neighbor, but their neighbor was also a son of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That was the only neighbor they seen. They, they only wanted to love other Jews uh, and, and it was all about them. I mean, God had selected them. He, he had delivered them to be a light to the world. That was the path that they were meant to walk in. They Remember, he talks in the parables about a, a city that is set on a hill that it shines forth. That's what the Jews were meant to be. They, they were busy covering their light under a bushel. 
That's why Jesus, is, whenever he was talking to them, it was so poignant and so noticeable because they were meant to be those things. But they had not become those things. They had instead become internal. They had become all about themselves and about who they were. They had become obsessed with it. They were no longer going to the nations. They were never going to the nations. I mean, look at the, the greatest Israeli or the greatest Jewish missionary of all time, Jonah. Fabulous, a man who is called of God and who is anointed. Absolutely no doubt that he is anointed. He's called to go to Nineveh and take the message that God's judgment is about to come. And he's, he's, given, the, he's given the call, he's given the anointing, the tools wherewith to accomplish the work. I don't know where that came from, but there you go. He's, he's, he's given it and he's told to go off. And he's going like, I'm not going to them people. I don't like them people. I'm not going, they're not Jews. I'm never going near them. In fact, he gets on a boat. We all know the story. He goes in the opposite direction. He's so determined not to take the word of God to these people that he's willing to die. He doesn't want to commit suicide because that's a, that's a bridge too far for him. But he tells him to throw him overboard. That's the level of desperation and determination this man's exhibiting not to share the good news. He was told to love your neighbor as yourself and he's like, I'm not doing it. Go to these people and tell them that judgment's coming. He ends up, he does go there and he tells them that judgment's coming. You've been living in open rebellion and sin against God. The judgment of God is coming. You need to repent. And they did. Gloriously. They turned as a man to, to God and repented. And then he goes out of the town to the, to the edge of the town and he mourns the fact that they've repented. Could you imagine our missionaries in the mission field out serving there, leading people to Christ, helping those who are in need and bringing the gospel to them? Could you imagine if they came back and they were doing their, 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 their sharing with us, they're telling about their great work? Could you imagine if, if they're standing and they're shaking their head? Oh, someone got saved. I didn't want them to get saved, but they got saved. Someone was delivered today. This is terrible. I helped people. They were called, he was called to do that. The Jews were called to be that light to the nations, to take the blessing of God, to take the influence of God, to take the word of God to the world. And they had resisted because they just wanted to be God's people without any God's responsibility. You see, to be in a relationship with God, to be in love with God, to be his people means that eventually that's got to come out. It's got to work out in our lives. Just like in that experience when I met that young man at the door and I started to talk to him, it was going to come out. In the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. What was in there was going to come out and I was going to share the gospel with him. It was inevitable. Looking back, it was inevitable. <laughs> but for the Jews, they were meant to do the same thing and they wouldn't. And for us, Responsibility is on us. We're called to love our neighbors as, our, as God has commanded also. We're good at sometimes giving to foreign missionaries and giving things far away. Are we good at being Christians in our neighborhoods, with our families and friends, sharing with them the good news? Does it bubble out of us? Does it come to the surface? Does it appear in our conversations, on our Facebook feeds, and our Twitter accounts, and what have you? Does it, does it appear in those places? 
Is it something we just tag on and I'll leave that there until I'm comfortable, until I'm, I feel like it? It shouldn't. It shouldn't. It should be something that defines us. God has called us to love those around us. The Jews were called to love their neighbors. In the law, in Exodus, whenever God said to the children of Israel, you shall have no other gods before me, they were happy to go nod and that's okay. The implication of the, the commandment is that God is the creator of all things. So therefore, God has created you and your neighbor. So just as you are a child of God, they are also a child of God in the sense that he has created them. So those surrounding nations which worship other gods are fake gods, are uh, deceived by whatever they're in. In essence, they are still created by God. So the implication was that you should treat them in such a way and be willing to go to them because they are your neighbors. They're actually made by the same God who made you. So for us, we should be going to our neighbors, our friends, our opportunities, taking whatever opportunities we have. I was on that doorstep with that young man and I could have avoided the question. I could have avoided the conversation. I could have had a nice week. Well, thank you very much. It's getting cold now. I'm going to go inside. But I took the opportunity, thankfully. And it's not easy to love some people. It's not easy to share the gospel with some people. It's not easy to, to, to be loving towards some people. They are a challenge, let's be honest. They are a challenge, some people. The best thing we can do if you're in that situation and there's someone on your heart and you're maybe thinking of them right now, uh, someone that you think, I can't speak to them, pray for them. Pray for them. You start to pray for them, things will happen. God will start moving in the background. And what God actually starts to do is he starts to change, change your heart. He starts to change them. He changes your heart towards them because you start, they start to become more lovable. You start to feel for them. You know, whenever, I remember my brother had a situation where in his work and it was a very difficult situation. He started praying for the other person um, that was causing, making his life miserable. And as he prayed for them, he, he was praying almost like, God, bring your judgment down upon them. <laughs> Lord, bring down, you know, they have treated the, the apple of your eye this way. You should bring, you know. <laughs> he, he wasn't as gracious to begin with as he could have been. But as he prayed for them, he felt sorry for them. He felt for them. He started to, his heart turned towards them. And God didn't bring judgment down on them. God blessed them. Blessed them in such a way that they moved. <laughs> That's the heart of God. That's the heart of God. So pray for those who, who we're meant to love. Because not everyone's easy to love. Some people are. Sharon. <laughs> Hopefully that made up. <laughs> and verse 32 goes on. He's, he's just, give, just told them there, there is no other commandment greater than these. Verse 32 says, So the scribe said to him, Well said, teacher, you have spoken truth, for there is one God, and there is no other but he. And to love him with all your heart, and with all the understanding, and with all the soul, and with all the strength, 
and to love one neighbor as oneself is more than all the whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. He understood. See, it has made a change from being an academic exercise that he was debating to now that there's significance. Now it meant more to him. It connected the dots, so to speak. Jesus didn't mention the offerings and the burnt sacrifices. He mentioned them. He's not being here sarcastic or flippant or anything like that there. He's being genuine, I believe. I believe his answer here is honest. He's understanding what Jesus means. He's understanding the significance of it. Significance of loving God for who he is with all your heart, soul, mind, and body. And then that will then work out to people around you. He understands that is the most important thing. Verse 34, now when Jesus saw that he had answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. You are not far from the kingdom of God. That's quite a statement, isn't it? His understanding of his, of his relationship with God and his responsibility as a result of that relationship was such that Jesus said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. It actually is a testimony to the Old Testament, isn't it, really, when you think about it? We, we sometimes look at the Old Testament as merely history or as merely, you know, stuff that's just on its own and we just need the New Testament to make sense of it, and it does. But there was enough in the Old Testament to point people to Christ. And in this one statement, God, Christ has actually said, you've understood what the whole point of the Old Testament was. Now, Jesus doesn't elaborate what's missing for this young man. He said to him, you're not far from the kingdom of God. He doesn't elaborate and explain. It's not like, remember the conversation with the rich young ruler where Jesus asked him if he'd followed the laws, if he'd lived right and all the rest. And he said, I've done all that since my mother's youth, from my youth. And Jesus said, well, go sell all that you have and follow me. And he couldn't because he had so much and he was so uh, uh, caught by it and trapped by it. In this case, Jesus doesn't elaborate, but I'd like to suggest, I'd like to suggest there was 12 inches from his head to his heart. That was the difference. For him, it was academic, and now it was becoming more real. He was understanding it. Because we can understand these things academically. We can understand that Jesus has saved us, but never do anything about it. I've got the ticket, I'm saved, I'm delivered, I'm a, I'm, that's it. But are you? Do you walk the path? Do you walk the walk or just talk the talk? So I want to ask you this morning, where do you stand today? Where do you stand before Almighty God? Are you a step away from the kingdom like this young man was? Do you linger between the light and the dark? Are you living for yourself? We all live for ourselves. But are we living for God? Is it something that's vital to us? Does it define us? Is it the core of our being? Is being a follower of Christ incidental to your life or vital to it? Is it center stage or backstage? Do you have a relationship with Christ? Speaking to him regularly, call it prayers, but do we speak to him regularly? Just pour out our hearts to him and then listen and listen for him to reply.
It's not religion. It's relationship. We don't know what happened to this scribe. We don't know the impact of this conversation on his life. We don't know what went through his mind, what he went away. It does say after this that they asked him no more questions. I would personally like to assume that the reason why is because this scribe was so affected by this conversation with Christ that he went away a changed man, that he went away with a greater appreciation for who God was and what God had done and his responsibility now as a follower. I would like to assume that. And they were scared of people, people coming to that same understanding. So they said, right, no one else ask him a question. But let me encourage you to make sure today. You know, the enemy will tell you that, oh, you haven't prayed in six weeks. You haven't read the Bible in six months. It'll try and heap reasons on you why you should be embarrassed and be ashamed and why you should not do it. But let me see, Christ never, never does that. Christ says, come unto me, all ye who are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Come unto me. He's willing to hear from us. He's ready to hear from us. Speak to him, pray with him, and get his word into your souls. And walk like it was real. I've seen too many fake Christians in this life. I've, I've, I'm not even that old. I'm not. I've seen too many fake Christians who just got the hashtag, got the t-shirt, and that's all. This world needs genuine believers, genuine followers of Christ people who walk like it really means something. People who walk like they believe it's true. And that's what we are called to be. We are called to be that. Salt and light. Praise you, Lord. Praise you, Lord. Praise you, Lord. Praise you, Lord. Lord God in heaven, we thank you that you are our God. Lord, we thank you that you have made a way where there was no way. Lord, we thank you that you have saved us, that you have redeemed us, that you have bought us back, that you've paid the price that we could not pay, that you have adopted us into your family, that we're no longer strangers and orphans, that we're no longer subject to the bondage and slavery of the past, that we're no longer subject to all of those things, but you have crowned us with loving kindness and tender mercies. Lord, you have adopted us into your family. We can cry out, Abba, Father. Lord, we love you. We thank you for what you've done in us. Lord, we just love you this morning, Lord. We thank you that you're our God, that you have done this in our lives, that you have changed us, Lord. We pray, Lord, that you'll help us, Lord, to walk it out in our lives, be real in it be real in it every day, Lord, to be in that relationship with you, Lord, and to walk your life, your life out to others and your love out to others, Lord. Lord, we praise you. We thank you, Lord, for this time around your word. Lord.